0: Hello and welcome to another
1: episode of Don't Blame the Mom. My name is Kate. And my name is Hannah. That's so weird, I was just about to say my name is Kate. That would be an absolutely blatant outrageous lie. <laughs> like, okay, cut, start again. Just going to steal your identity today. But actually, it's not just any old episode, Irish. I know. It's episode 50. I can't believe it's episode 50. I can't either. We said like, we were going to stop annoying everyone by getting like excited, excited. every single number of each episode. Um, Just because we're excited that we can actually count. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, the fact that it's 50, this is a milestone. So yay. It is a
0: milestone. I think, I mean, I was debating in my head whether 50 or 52 was a milestone. Why would 52 be a milestone? Because 52 weeks in a year. Is there? Right. Isn't it 56. (laughs) No, I swear, no, we looked this oh off before, God. I swear it was 52. I don't know, don't well, ask me anything to do with Well then, numbers. in that case, either 52 or 56.
1: <laughs> no, because still though, we. no, I think, no, fifty. just 50 sounds better. 50 so sounds this is better. our milestone. 50 does sound better. for that milestone, we've got an extra special case today that we feel everyone will probably have heard of. But yeah. we're not going to talk about it. Just we've yet. gone with the heavy hitters. We've gone Sorry. with the heavy hitters, guys. We like to pull them out of the bag every now and again. Absolutely. You know, get back to our roots and all. But yeah. um, before that, I just want to say we are recording Friday afternoon, just before Irish's third birthday <laughs> celebration. <laughs> She's I like, am three. You are. <laughs> she is three years old. No, this is her third. She had a, a, an Ireland birthday, mm-hmm. which we bored you with already. The Switzerland birthday, which we bored you with. And now next week don't worry guys we're going to be boring you with the antics of her London birthday. Yeah. No, I'm I'm, I'm actually really excited because I have absolutely no idea what we're doing. I know I almost I've had to, like, really stop myself this week from accidentally saying, like, oh, well, I hope... And then I'm like, no, I can't say anything because she doesn't know what we're actually doing. Yeah, I literally know absolutely nothing. Yeah. I think
0: everyone's being really careful around me, like, almost trying to ignore me so that they don't get things yeah. wrong.
1: No, they're just ignoring you because they just don't like you. Oh, uh, so. that. <laughs> Damn it. No, so we're, we're going to be going there afterwards. It's going to be a very fun night. I will take some photos and pictures so we can post on Instagram and see our little Irish, uh, little mm. Irish bombshell. <laughs> Just My little
0: celebration. See her in
1: her in her natural habitat. <laughs> I know.
0: Yeah, in a pub. Yeah, hundred percent. That's that's correct. Well, you
1: don't know where we're going to be, actually. Well, who knows? I, I, who knows?
0: I, I do know we're starting in a pub because oh. you tell me we're going to be. Did I? To, you said we have to be in the pub by six. Oh
1: shit! Did I say pub? Oh for fuck! Did I actually? Oh, you, you didn't even last tell me that. Oh damn! But I didn't think that was a big deal.
0: I mean, I assumed. Okay, fine. Well, I assumed we're not going to the library. Well,
1: okay, well that's just a meeting point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you can do it a lot worse than a library, okay? I really like the library. Honestly, great times. So how has your week been, though, thus far?
0: Really busy. I actually called over to your sister, Rachel, on Wednesday. Oh, did you
1: now? I did, yeah. Oh, look at the jealousy. Look at the jealousy on her face. <laughs> just rage just her, flashes across my yeah, face. Yeah,
0: her eyes literally just flashed red.
1: <laughs> oh, I see. My sister Rachel's, was it? Whenever you say, oh, I was at your sister's, And I'm like, which one is it going to be today? <laughs> <laughs> um how was how was my sister she is great oh good yeah good, good. um and i got my
0: birthday present from her Ooh. what did you get she got me Nike blazers
1: oh actually i did know that she told me those They're trainers so, so
0: nice baby pink really really oh, my cute God, So nice. really cute um but yeah so that was lovely and we just had a couple of drinks and then i helped put louis to bed and when was this wednesday
1: oh we well, could have yeah. come no, oh, sorry, you're not invited. No, oh, all right, fine. <laughs> Screw you guys. <laughs> I'm the fun sister anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you this evening. I'll do a vote. Yeah. Oh, they're all coming. All of us. It's going to be four of my, four of the Macintosh girls there. I know. It's going to be so exciting. I'm yeah, really not that I'm a Macintosh it. anymore, ille- legally, <laughs> but uh, really in my former knowing. life, you know, yeah. four, four Macintosh sisters all out for, for the, uh, well, I'm not going to say four, four, but um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So how's your Buffy marathon going? Ooh. You're still doing that? Well,
0: because I've been so busy trying to get this done, I actually haven't. And Sean doesn't really want to watch Buffy. (gasps) I know. What?! Who on earth Doesn't want to watch Buffy I know How are we even together I mean that's just
1: Sacrilege no, I know no, He's not.
0: just not interested In watching Buffy At all what? I know And I love it So oh, yeah I have just I just went back to the beginning And I'm literally I'm yeah. on season two
1: You know what I might actually join you On your escapade I'm 100% do it. You know It's like the nostalgia For me Like and just I mean Every episode is like a movie It's so good It's so good And she is just the best And she looks exactly the same I know She's such know. a
0: ride Isn't yeah,
1: she Yeah she is I just A what A ride <laughs> really rude. is that is that is that what i think it sounds like yeah oh okay all right yeah she is she's gorgeous um but i I still always have this like inner like conflict like did i want her to be with angel Angel or did i want her to be with spike i just don't know i can't answer because if you want to go with humor you know you're gonna have to go with spike yeah but then again he's actually yeah like uh, today the the whole leather jacket and I feel like Angel kind of like was a bit of a fuck boy as well. He's
0: actually just so good looking though.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I mean I can't say that because Editor Harry, but uh <laughs> <Jack>. <laughs> just kidding no but um yeah no he was he was a he was a total babe back in the day um, and he's all right still i, I was still, only yeah, looking at him the, the, the day. no i was gonna say though i'm actually gonna join you on that and i'm gonna 200%. start watching buffy as well just because i remember i used to try and dress like her when I was at school oh it was God, like a so hybrid of britney spears and buffy, buffy. like i such a loser like i literally would this crucifix like really cheap <laughs> ass crucifix Stop. yeah i think i've still got it seriously i still got it um and then like every time she'd wear like a sort of like top with like like sort of lace crisscrossing at the front oh my god i have to get i have to get buffy a top like buffy's like she was like an idol and obviously britney's just britney so hello um but anyway i went completely off on a tangent there um and guys i just want to say as well that we are well we're not In these categories, but could you please vote for us at the True Crime Awards? If you um, go to listeners' choice category, listeners' choice category, and the True Crime Awards, you can literally just. Type in, don't blame the mum, and then give a reason for why you want to vote for us. You know, you don't have to tell us what that is. You could just say they made me do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine as they well. Me. That, that works for us. <laughs> um, but yeah, if, that, if you could do that, that would really help support us because obviously the more we can get our name out there, then the more we can record and the more time we can spend researching more thoroughly which is what we want to do absolutely um, so check yeah, it out we'd really appreciate that yeah and we'll also have the links on our insta stories as well for that yeah. we'll
0: totally bore you with them for the next few weeks yeah, until, we those, until the results come through <laughs>
1: yeah 100% I'm sure we're going to get blocked left right and centre aren't we oh. don't block us <laughs> don't block us please but uh, is there anything else you'd like to say or? well we had a
0: really funny message that I kind of wanted to read out oh go on so the message was it, I think it actually might have been a little while ago but oh no it was in December Um, but I hadn't seen it and I only just saw it this week and I literally burst out laughing when I read it so it's from somebody who goes by the handle Papa Mungo and they've started by saying good content but can you please
2: (laughs) Stop say. saying
0: trigger warning every five minutes. <laughs> it's a podcast about serial killers, and anyone that's sensitive should not be listening.
1: To be fair, it's a fair point. I burst out <laughs> laughing. I was like,
0: actually, okay, I can totally see where you're coming I, from. I
1: totally get it. And I agree. From now on, we are doing one Winter trigger warning morning. at the beginning, and that's it, guys. Okay? You're going to have to suck it up. Yeah, you're going you to have to. You know what you got yourselves think into. We get, especially at the beginning, we got overly paranoid about getting in trouble for not being clear about how graphic the content is but we don't need to be paranoid anymore she's quite right if you're too sensitive maybe don't listen to true crime yeah um, because you know it is going to involve some pretty gross subjects yeah it?
0: so we've taken that on board papa Mongo. thank you and i also want to say she also put here just at the very end great here in irish accent though so uh you're welcome <laughs> did you write that review yes i did <laughs> <laughs> no, she definitely um, wrote it. I, it did make me laugh, so I thought, right, we have to give that one a show Yeah,
1: out. actually, when you, I didn't even realize there was any of those reviews. So when you showed them to me, I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to have a little gander at these. Yeah, and there were some other really lovely
0: ones as well. Yeah. Um, but let's not bore everybody. I just thought that one was kind of funny.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, on that note, I reckon um, we've we've done. We've crossed our T's, dotted our I's. We've done that one trigger warning. We're not saying it again, ever ever again. no I just and said it. Then
0: from now on, you can blame Papa Mungo if you have a problem with that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Any She's issues? gonna have to take full responsibility any
0: issues get in touch
1: exactly so on that note in may 1972 to april 1973 a string of horrific and brutal murders were about to shock the country no the county of santa cruz california when young women suddenly started to disappear as the bodies of the six young female co-eds are found discarded and dismembered in different locations The horrifying discoveries show these poor victims suffered violent and grisly deaths. Sadly, the one mistake the girls had made was unwittingly getting into a car with an evil psychopath who came across as just a gentle giant. This towering hulk of a killer was intelligent, polite, and to all intents and purposes, a nice guy who was liked by all who met him. This even included the local police, who he would occasionally accompany on car rides and join for drinks at a local bar. When law enforcement one day received a phone call from Big Ed confessing to murdering his mother and her friend, the dubious cops were about to discover who their elusive co-ed killer was. And they realised they personally knew the killer that they'd been hunting all along. Shockingly, these weren't his first murders. He'd also killed his grandparents as a teenage boy. As a result of his notoriety, Ed became one of the main subjects and case study for the world's most famous FBI agents due to his willingness to talk openly, honestly, and in depth about serial killing and his crimes, consequently leading the FBI to coin the phrase serial killer, something that was an almost unknown phenomenon to the public back then and in the 70s. The savagery of his murders and candid openness to discuss them secured his place as one of the most infamous and renowned serial killers in American history. This is episode 50, Edmund Kemper, The Co-Ed Killer.
0: So one of the sources I used for today's episode was The Co-Ed Killer, Mind of a Monster. And I was watching that on Prime. And now the opening line of the documentary is of Ed Kemper himself speaking in an interview with investigators. And as Hannah said, you know, he was prolific for interviews. Mm. He really enjoyed actually interviews. And loved the sound of his own voice. Absolutely loved the sound of his own voice. But they opened it and he says, and quote, well, I had this fantasy as a kid about swallowing an eyeball, this weird trip, I got tired of doing the old fantasies and decided to make them real. There's nothing to cutting someone's head off. When I had done that, I decided, well, what the hell? She's pretty. I wonder if she tastes pretty. That's when I found out I was a homicid- homicidal maniac.
1: Crikey. I did not hear this one.
0: Well, I mean, I thought to myself, that really sums Ed Kemper up neatly. Mm. So I feel like we're done here for today. Um, yeah. Thanks for okay, listening. Guys. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs> Have
1: a great weekend.
0: Bye-bye. <laughs> um, no, but I just wanted to kind of open it with some kind of, ma- like, some of the mad stuff that he yeah. says. So... Let's get into his childhood, okay? So one of the things that most people think of when they think of Ed Kemper is his sheer size. Ed Kemper was a mammoth of a guy. He would grow to be 6 foot 9 inches, so 206 centimeters for those who prefer that, and weighed up to 300 pounds, which is 136 kilos or 21 stone and 4 pounds. you. He was a massive guy. He's a big old fella, and the, yeah, and being that he was a giant adult, he was also a giant baby. So he weighed thirteen pounds at birth,
1: which no, no wonder his mom didn't like him. <gasps> Joke. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm just kidding. Fair point. I feel. I mean, it's terrifying to thought of that. Could you, she was a big lady now herself. She was hitting about six foot, wow. which is pretty tall for a female mm. now. Yeah. it must have been huge in 1948, which is the year when Kemper was born. Right. Yeah. Like that's massive. Yeah. So Ed was born Edmund. So okay, I'm gonna go Edmund Emil Kemper. Uh, that that middle name is a bit debatable in different places. But Edmund Emil Kemper the third in Burbank, California, on the 18th of December 1948. To parents Edmund Emil Kemper II, yeah, and Clarnell Elizabeth Kemper.
1: God, they love that name in that family, don't they? Edmund Emil.
0: They really go for it. Mm. Um, I I have a bit of an issue with people constantly naming the same name, rehashing though. it. Yeah, I yeah. feel it's a little bit narcissistic
1: because the grandfather was also Edmund. Yeah, Emil. He's
0: Edmund Emil, the Kemper, original, the first. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, look, each to their own. Uh, I mean, I come from a family where half my cousins are named. Uh, we're all named after you each You have other. got
1: about 20 names yourself as well. So you, know, you lo-
0: are like the greedy name girl. Love a name. <laughs> um, he was the middle child of three children with an older sister, Susan, and a younger sister, Allen. His father, Edmund, Edmund Emil Kemper II, was a World War II vet. He was also a tall man standing at six foot eight inches so, this is just one tall, tall family. After the war, he worked at the Pacific Proving Grounds on the Marshall Islands in the Pacific Ocean. Now, the Pacific Proving Grounds, for those who don't know, was where the US government were working with atomic energy and testing nuclear weapons from about 1946 to 1962. And this is what Ed II was doing in his role as an electrician. Mm. So when his father moved back to California, he continued to work in, as an electrician. And Ed's parents, Ed II and Clarinelle, his marriage, it didn't actually last. So with Ed II famously saying that fighting in the war and nuclear bomb testing was nothing compared to living with Clarnell, And you'll see that quote from the dad everywhere. Now, Clarnell is really vying for the number one don't blame the mom spot. She is described as a domineering woman who was controlling and scornful. She would refer to her husband's job as an electrician, as menial, constantly belittling him. Yeah. Was, you know, just one of these types of people. Like who's... to put him
1: down. Yeah. And all of them down.
0: Yeah, exactly. She's just She was just the bee's knees and everyone else was crap, basically. So, I mean, I also completely disagree. Like, electricians, you got to be pretty smart to be an electrician. Yeah, of course you do. And so I, I, I thought that was, like like not yeah, only strange inaccurate she's wrong if, you know sometimes people want
1: to put yeah you want to put people down to make to try and build yourself up which is not the right way to do it obviously yes
0: um now she was also not a very nice mother to ed she was just mean actually and she'd mock him relentlessly for how big he was tell him how no one would ever love him because he was a weirdo and he was a, like he was strange mm. and odd um now part of me is like this is awful thing to say. But mm. part of me is like, was her little sixth sense picking up on something from quite young? Like, was she actually seeing something in him? Well, it depends King King?
1: on whether she was mean to the other kids. I don't think she was as mean to the girls, no. So he was targeted. Oh, he was definitely targeted. Maybe, but even so, you know, is that... Is it a good way to do it to like someone who you feel is a slight abnormality? Is it a good way to sort of like pick at them and prod at them? Absolutely, and poke, poke at them? them down, push them down yeah. until you push or, them to their limits. Or do you wanna get them into therapy ASAP? Uh, yeah,
0: do you yeah know what true, I mean? true, true. So she was also an alcoholic, which did not help matters, where she would lay into poor Ed with tyrants and tyrants of verbal abuse. Mm. So, Ed, okay, we're going back to Ed Kemper. I'm going to just call his dad his dad from now on because it's the dad, so confusing. Yeah, to the dad, and granddad. Granddad, Ed. So, Ed Kemper III, back to is just Kemper, now, was around nine years of age when his parents divorced and his dad moved out of the family home. In 1957, Clarnell uproots the family and moves to Helena, Montana, where she had managed to get herself a job. Now the house in Montana had three bedrooms upstairs and Clara decides that she and the two girls will each have an upstairs bedroom and therefore Ed will be relegated to the basement room downstairs. And relegated is exactly how Ed would come to perceive this allocation of the rooms. Mm. This basement was dark, cold and dingy. There was a single bare bulb hanging from the ceiling to light the room. And you had to actually get down the stairs in the dark in order to be able to switch on this light. Hell no. I know. As an adult, I'd find that scary name. Yeah. But as a child, you'd be terrified. Yeah. Like, uh, like, and like a lot of children, he was afraid of the dark. Mm. So he would have awful nightmares in this, ba- in this basement and wake up screaming in the night. Uh, his resentment for his mother was being cemented in these moments where he felt like he was the unloved child. Mm hmm. So Ed began portraying some troubling behavior from an early age. He was showing clear patterns of sociopathy, and with that bold statement from someone who doesn't have a degree in psychology, we are bringing back the McDonald Triad. Oh, here we go! So the three it's factors... back for episode fifty. Oh uh, yes, yeah, you're so right. It needed to be in for, episode for the ultimate. 15. Don't blame the
1: mother, Ed Kemper. <laughs>
0: So the three factors in, the, in childhood that can predict predatory, antisocial and violent tendencies in later life, as suggested by the McDonald Triad, are persistent bedwetting, arson and cruelty to animals. So a child showing any two of these behaviours can indicate that they have antisocial, or that they will have antisocial behaviour issues down the line. We know that Ed was a persistent bedwetter and that he was also cruel to animals throughout his childhood. Bastard. So he, as we mentioned, he was a big talker and he'd go on to do many interviews with psychiatrists, police, the FBI, and even helping cases later on. He also helped the FBI by giving interviews to try to develop and the understanding of the mindset of a serial killer. So like if you haven't read the true crime book Mindhunter about the creation of the BSU or the behavioral science unit written by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. Well, he was an integral part of this book. And there's also a show, Mind Hunter, which is brilliant. I'm oh, I, I might love add. that program. I've watched it twice. Mm. I've watched the whole series twice. I and think I'm I have gutted too.
1: that they are not doing a I third know.
0: series. So but this show also does details of the involvement of um, Kemper assisting the FBI in the creation of the BSU. And as we said, I totally recommend it. And oh, the fella amazing. who plays Kemper is amazing. I can't think of the actor's name.
1: Um, I've got no idea, but I, I'd say everyone who is play all the actors who were cast in that were absolutely spot on with Amazing. all of the killers that they were portraying, you know. Oh. They all look exactly like them, sound exactly like them. It was perfect. Perfection.
0: Yeah, they did it really, really well. But Ed's younger sister, Alan, was also asked by psychiatrist Donald T. Lunde to discuss Ed's childhood and what it was like growing up with him. So Lunday would, well, uh, he was the first psychiatrist to interview Ed on behalf of the defence to determine if Ed was criminally insane. So in her interviews, Alan would corroborate incidents in Ed's childhood. She tells Lunday about a doll she received from her grandparents as a gift. So when she was not playing with it, she kept it in its box to keep it safe. One day she opened the box and she's horrified to find that Ed had cut the hands off the doll
1: Creepy
0: And so this was not the only time He had done this to dolls Other dolls might have Their heads chopped off Or other limbs etc Chopped off Now I've heard people say That this isn't a strange thing To do to dolls or teddies But I have to totally disagree I was so precious with my dolls and teddies Oh my god I still
1: have All my mermaid dolls No I do I seriously do And their hair Is perfectly intact um uh, it's a lot neater than mine to be fair and um I was so proud you know when people used to like used to get felt tips and scribble on the faces of people. yeah like, I never doll. did stuff me like neither that. I mean I'd be outraged when I'd see that so no I, I was really careful with my dolls and I, I
0: think like sometimes siblings might do that to each other where they might like cut the doll's hair and stuff like that but I feel like cutting mm, off limbs is-
1: I felt like doing it once to one of Becca's mermaid dolls because she <laughs> she got um a, um treasure ariel for her birthday you know i obsessed with a little mermaid and uh sorry it's only a quick one guys and um then she got the, the mermaid doll that i wanted and so i was really like jealous and annoyed and then i almost was like i want to do something to it but i didn't i stopped myself so i can kind of see where i was going with this one and, and hannah's
0: psychopathy <laughs> i'm
1: a secret psycho
0: yeah not so secret now um very, very we dolls so he also used to make up games and they were kind of games about death. So he and his sister would play a game called either gas chamber or electric chair.
1: Oh, sounds lovely. You know what do you, Hannah? Whatever happened to Monopoly? Yeah.
0: And as you can probably guess, the game was that he would get his younger sister, Alan, to tie him to a chair and then pretend to like flip the switch. And he would fall around the place either gasping for air or shaking like he was being electrocuted. Wow. Yeah, fun times. So I don't know which of those two things are weirder, but like... It is kind of like
1: they are kind of. It's a very sort of dark, macabre kind of, kind of game to play for a kid. I yeah, mean, yeah,
0: but kids do do weird things sometimes. Yeah, you know?
1: but I mean, I, I used to like want to be a dog, and I used to pretend I was a dog, and like things like that, go, like on all fours and like bark and be like, "You could be the mums and the dads, and I'll be the pet dog." Like that, I seriously did. I probably should be telling people this, but there you go. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so take it to therapy, Hannah. <laughs> but I would never play a game where like I'm like someone's dying or like. Things no, like death or But I we did just say like operation and stuff like that. Yeah, operation, things like that. But that was more like saving. And doctors and nurses. Yeah, doctors, nurses, stuff like that. But that was more like or like but then again it the seems like doing shops and, you know, I'm a shopkeeper or I'm the banker, whatever. But never something where it's like pretend you're in the electric chair and then I'm gonna electrocute you to death. Like
0: yeah. You know, we were actually laughing at my birthday in Dublin. Me and one of my Which good one friends. was that? Number one. And that was birthday number one. <laughs> yeah. But me and one of my good friends Liz. We were kind of playing with dolls quite like quite late on. Like we probably were quite too old to be playing with dolls when yeah. we still were. And our older friend Fiona was like so enraged that that we would do this. And of course we'd be like, You be Ken and we'll be Barbie and whatever. And Fiona would march Ken up to the top of the Barbie mansion and throw him off and say, <laughs> Ken's dead now. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so funny oh. We were laughing our heads off about that anyway But go on, listen So, where were we? Dismembering of dolls and the gas chamber games Okay, so all kind of creepy But also, Ed also admits to Lunday That he decapitated the family cat When he was around 10 years of age oh. This gets worse um, So bear with And mounted its head on a spike God, I hate this guy now, another poor cat was also dismembered because he felt that the cat was showing more affection to his siblings and he hated that. Um, now, his mother found the pieces of the second cat hidden in the wardrobe in his bedroom. I mean, the smell must have been No, disgusting. this
1: is actually, I can't cope with things like this. You know, I can't cope with animal stuff. It's weird, but I just can't. I can't deal. Well... Listen, you know the
0: rules. There's a new rule in town. Yeah,
1: no trigger warning, so. <laughs>
0: um, his father moved on and remarried a beautiful and glamorous German woman called Elfrieda, And although his sister spoke about the father not being emotionally invested or close to the children when they were growing up, Ed felt that he and his father were close and he idolized him. And... My personal opinion is I feel that he felt that way because the mother would berate him so much and tell him like, you're just like your father and, Mm. you know, this kind of stuff. So I think he felt that him and his dad had this connection. Yes. I don't think it was, um, what's that word given back? Reciprocated? Reciprocated. So Ed was hating living with his mother and in the winter of 1963, he ran away from his mother's home. And got on a bus and made his own way down to Van Nuys, California to find his dad. Now, Elfrida actually had her own boy from a previous relationship, so Ed had a stepbrother. But this was not going to be a new great brotherly relationship for him because Elfrida was actually a bit afraid of Ed. He gave her the creeps, and one day when she caught Ed watching her undress, that was the final straw and she demanded that he had to go. So, Alan, Ed's sister, tells it, that Ed overheard his dad saying that Ed and quote, was always causing problems in his new life. So that Christmas his dad suggested that he and Ed go and visit Ed's grandparents about 150 miles away on their beautiful but isolated ranch in Sierra Nevada foothills in North, North Fork, California. So his granddad obviously was Edmund the I and his grandmother was called Maude. Yes. That's such a nice name. So This all turned out to be a ruse. When his dad brought him there, his whole plan was that they'd go. But when he was leaving, he was leaving on his own. And Ed was going to be staying there. So he'd go back, stay with his new wife, Elfrida, And Ed was going to be left with his grandparents
1: and telling him,
0: you're going to be staying on the ranch now.
1: So now a teenager, 15-year-old Ed who was battling inner demons and dark thoughts that would lead very soon to him committing a grisly double murder. And the tragedy was, in fact, to take place on his grandparents' ranch. The same ranch where he had just been ditched by his dad, basically hang with his parents and fend for himself. Mm. so there 's different reasons listed publicly as to why Ed came to live with his grandparents, and some say that his dad did send him there, and then because ed wasn 't getting on with his stepmom, like you said, then other sources say it 's because his mum was going to remarry and she didn 't want him around so I, I feel like it 's a combination of both nobody seemed to want him yeah, and so they were like let 's just ship him off to their ranch. So um, his grandmother, Maud Matilda's maiden name was Huey until she met and married his grandfather, Edmund Emil Kemper Senior. So Maud was born in 1897 and Edmund Senior was born in 1892. Maud was an author and she wrote children's books. His grandfather, Edmund, was a retired state employee and the couple lived together on this big sprawling ranch. So although Edmund ed was only 15 at this stage like you said he is a towering hulk of a, of a boy mm. you know well not a boy of a teen shall we say so six foot four at this stage it's tall by any standards yeah. let alone for a 15 year old you know teenager yeah. so he's still attending school and he's still very socially awkward especially around girls it seems that he really detested living with his grandparents on this ranch. They all apparently also didn't really want him there either, and they just did not get along. So it can't kind have of made for a very nice atmosphere where you're living with people you think don't want you around and you don't want to be around them either. So it clearly would have been quite an awkward sort of situation. It was said that their relationship was constantly tense and he was constantly walking on eggshells. Ed claims his grandmother nagged him all the time. So that's not so unusual, you know, an older woman nagging a teenager, you know, teenagers can be stroppy and, and hormonal and, you know, messy. Yeah, just a guardian. Exactly. That's a thing, you know, that's kind of like everyone gets nagged as a teenager. So um, it's not really any reason, though, to cause that person any physical harm. Or, you know, feel as much anger as Ed what, clearly did. exactly. So it seems that he channeled a lot of the anger that he actually felt towards his mum into the feelings that he was now harboring and that were growing towards his grandmother too. So all the things he hated about his mum when he'd lived under her roof, he now seemed to recognize and attribute them towards his grandmother. He's not living with his mum. She's not around to be the center of his, his hatred. Like, he, like he'd like he always felt for her. So instead, either consciously or subconsciously, he's channeling this anger and bitterness and violent thoughts he'd previously harbored towards his mum, towards Maud. And now little did Maud know he was secretly targeting these dangerous thoughts towards her. These weren't just your standard stroppy teenage boy type fantasies stemming from, you know, video games or films that he'd watched, or it wasn't like a phase or anything. Ed was completely consumed by murderous thoughts and urges that most teenage boys would never have. He was fantasizing about murdering his grandmother. and This urge was becoming stronger by the day. He was like a ticking time bomb that was about to explode. The fact he was so consumed with violent thoughts wasn't helped by the fact that there was one hobby Ed really enjoyed and that was hunting. He was an avid and enthusiastic hunter. It was something he said was his form of escapism. And apparently at this point in his life, it was the only thing he took enjoyment and pleasure from. So his grandfather, Ed Senior, had once given him a present, a .22 caliber rifle. <laughs> and he used that rifle to hunt small animals like squirrels and like rabbits on the ranch, which he, um, you know, his ranch he now calls home. So his grandparents did not mind him hunting on their ranch at all, as long as it was just hunting small game like rabbits. But Ed would take it one step further and started shooting at birds in the sky and in the trees. Now, his grandparents really did not like that, as it was dangerous to shoot the gun upwards because you've got less control over it, apparently. And where the bullet goes, you can't really tell. If you're pointing upwards, apparently, you know, less chance of of being able to get a proper aim. So it's just different dangerous, you know... Basically, it's just dangerous, right, guys? Don't do it. (laughs) So, for safety reasons, they just told him from expert Hannah. Exactly, there you go. So that's why they said to him, "Do not shoot upwards at any birds, you know, no matter what," which is fair enough. So, when school holidays came up. Ed was allowed to go back to Montana to stay with his mum and sisters, but apparently, when he did, his experience there was much the same as before. His mum didn't seem to want him there, he did not have a good time, and again, it left him feeling unwanted, unloved, and uncomfortable around that side of his family. From what I've read, time and again, his mum just just did not like it at all. She really didn't like him. Um, and admittedly, it's a weird thing to say about a mother towards her child, but it, it is a recurring theme that's going to constantly crop up throughout this episode. Um, it was a very fractious and complex relationship between Ed and Clarnell. And we'll find out it's very likely the catalyst that turned Ed from this disturbed young man into what will soon be a violent killer. When he came back from his mum's house and went back to the ranch, Ed had changed. Something had changed in him. It must have been significant too. So much so that Maud noticed it and was actually really worried about him. Her concern was such that she even started locking away all the guns into cabinets. Clearly, she was not comfortable with him having access to firearms Mm, anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he was finding it harder to conceal his evil thoughts from her and she was picking up that something wasn't right, maybe she had a bad feeling, who knows. We'll never know for sure as Maud was not going to live long enough to tell her side. It was 10 months after Ed had moved in with his grandparents that on August 27th, 1964, Ed could not fight his overwhelming urge to kill anymore. He and Maud were in the kitchen on the ranch that day when they got into another argument. Now, this was something, like, as we know, it was not necessarily unusual. These two butted heads a lot. He just sees her as another version of his mum, and he's going to get angered very easily. But today was different. Something was about to snap, and Ed could not control it. On this day, she'd been working on an article that she was writing for a Boy Scouts magazine. So she's sitting down at the table, and as they're arguing, Ed picks up his twenty-two rifle and says, I'm going out to hunt. Maud replies with... Oh, you better not be shooting any more birds again. So as Ed reaches the doorway, he turns round and he lifts the rifle, aiming it as Maud has her back to him and is totally unaware of the mortal danger she is in as he pulls the trigger and shoots her in the back of the head. He shoots her twice in the back as well as she sinks to the floor and Ed, still completely enraged, takes her lifeless body by the ankles and drags her into her bedroom, leaving a trail of blood throughout the house. He knew his grandfather, Ed, who had gone out shopping for groceries, should be due back at any minute. So he just waits, and around 20 minutes later, Edmund Sr. T- truck pulls up outside the home. As he gets out of the vehicle and he starts unloading the groceries, he also has his back to Ed, who once again raises the rifle, aims, and shoots his grandfather in the back of the head. So now both his grandparents are dead and he's responsible. Actually insane. It's insane. So at the age of 15, Ed is now a double Double murderer. murderer. So in shock at what he'd just done and confused what to do next, he picks up the phone and he calls the one person he despises the most. His mum picks up the phone and as he confesses to what he's done, she tells him to call the police immediately. So he does. He calls the police who find him sitting on the front porch calmly as they pull up a few minutes later. So now Ed is under arrest and he's taken into custody. And he says a line to officers, which is pretty infamous in the world of true crime now. He says, quote, I just wanted to see what it felt like to kill grandma, end quote. So Ed also explained that he killed his grandfather, so he would not have had to find out that his wife was dead, and he didn't want his grandfather to be angry with him, so that's why he killed him. Oh, that's good of him, isn't it? It's like, oh, you know, instead of like, I mean, i say he'd be more angry if you try and kill him as well, do you know what I mean? But anyway, there's no, it doesn't make any sense. So Well, it does. He didn't want to get in trouble with his granddad, so he killed him. Yeah, but I mean, you know, just... Oh, I don't know. Just don't kill anyone, Leonard. He's, How about that? Yeah, he's just a selfish. Exactly. Shepherd. So psychiatrist Donald Lund, who interviewed Kemper during his adulthood, wrote, In his way, he had avenged the rejection of both his mother and his father. And that's kind of what he'd he'd been doing when he killed those his grandparents. He what? was basically the anger and the rejection he's built up from Clonel, his oh, mom, sorry. Yeah, and yeah. the rejection of his dad just ditching him there at this ranch. This all bubbled up into like, right now I'm getting my revenge. And he took it out on the two people closest to him, which were the grandparents at that particular time. Mm-hmm. So his crimes were deemed incomprehensible for a 15 year old to commit. And court psychiatrist diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. He was consequently sent to Atascadero State Hospital, which is the maximum security facility in San Luis Obispo County, which houses mentally ill convicts and the criminally insane. It sounds a bit like the American version of Broadmoor, which is what we have in England. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's so weird that they would put a child into a facility In amongst, with adults, with adult and I feel like it's because killers. he looked older than he was. That's yeah, why they did. They that. probably
1: assumed that he could handle it more. It's but I mean, such a these aren't just adults either. These are criminals. These are murderers. These are rapists. Pipists, these, yeah. are mm. these are sadists. These are. The worst, the, worst the worst of the worst these yeah. are the people that he who's 15 so his brain is obviously still not fully formed yet Is going to be learning from he's going to be absorbing That's like everything they years, tell him isn't it? absolutely so atascadero was found, formerly known as california department of state hospitals it's located on the central coast of california halfway between los angeles and san francisco it is an all-male maximum security facility forensic institution that houses these mentally ill convicts who have been committed to psychiatric facilities by the california courts so it's located on 700 acre grounds and it's like the largest employer in that town mm-hmm. atascadero opened with the philosophy that good therapy could be carried on in a security setting and modern methods of psychiatric treatment based on therapeutic community concept which would most likely succeed So the problems of therapy versus security and prison versus hospital immediately developed and hindered successful treatment. So they're basically saying like they think that if we um, teach them well enough and train them well enough that they can all get better and we can release them. That's in layman's terms. That's what they're trying to do here. So the Mm. belief that criminals should be punished for their crime and not babied haunted this hospital program. For several years, beginning in 1959, a series of unfortunate and tragic incidents occurred at that hospital, and the number of escapes and violent incidents, as well as a widespread community concerned with investigation of the hospital's problems. Like, they weren't very careful with their convicts, basically. So um, people escaped, um, it wasn't working what they were trying to do at that particular time, but those were early days when it first started, and it ultimately resulted in a revamping of the organisation and the treatment programs which began in nineteen sixty one just before Ed was detained. So Ed, who's now there, has actually he's one of the youngest convicts there. He is he, he is he's the youngest yeah. convict there, yeah. A Tascadero housed predominantly adults. and it's actually crazy he was allowed to go live there function and just socialize amongst all of them it's it's nuts they're not the type of people you want a young impressionable mind to be associating with if you're trying to get him rehabilitated god knows the types that he was rubbing shoulders with and learning things from He was ingratiating himself and becoming friends with rapists, murderers, necrophiliacs, sadists, the most barbaric, the most savage of killers, of of rapists, of sexual predators. And these are the people that he was with day in, day out, you know, night in, night out. And these people would tell him about the best ways that they think to kill someone and to dispose of bodies and all this kind of stuff. And the best way to avoid detection if you want to kill loads of people. And he was soaking it all in Ed. This is a place where someone who could potentially be a serial killer could really hone his craft. So meanwhile, at Tescadero, California's youth authority, the psychiatrists and social workers there disagreed with the initial court psychiatrist diagnoses on Ed. So, whilst he was on trial for murdering his grandparents, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia by those court psychiatrists. However, the psychiatrist at Atascadero disagreed. He was diagnosed as sociopathic, passive-aggressive, um, and antisocial type of personality disorders. He had quite a few of those under his belt. Yeah. So, he, he had many different diagnoses. However, during his time there, the new reports and evaluations stated that he showed, quote, no float... No flight of ideas, no interference with thought, no expressions of delusions or hallucinations and no evidence of bizarre thinking,
0: end quote. Of bizarre, well, I mean, (laughs) what's your...
1: I mean, come on. What's your definition of bizarre thinking? They also noted him to be extremely intelligent and introspective. Initial testing measured his IQ at 136, which is two standard deviations above the average IQ. He was then subsequently diagnosed with a lesser condition after this, a personality trait disturbance, passive aggressive type. So now they're basically downplaying the problems that Ed has. Yeah. They're downplaying these mental sort of like antisocial type things he has, like this soci- sociopathy, sociopathy, <laughs> oh God, I need a drink now, joking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're basically playing down though, all of these things, which is, is, is deadly, you know? Yeah. And also he's very clever because he was able to hide what was really going was on in his head I was just going to say, well. he was playing them. He was. He was getting smarter and smarter. And he was figuring out the system. Exactly. And he wasn't going to put his intelligence to good use, like I do every day, obviously. <clears throat> so he actually, when they did a second test, his IQ came in at 145. So it was even higher okay. than they first thought. So that's so why you see so many
0: different versions yeah, of it. Yeah, because, because they did different ones throughout ones.
1: his time there. He but. was constantly being tested. He was constantly being... Um, looked at but obviously they weren't getting him right because he tricked them all of them he made them think that he was rehabilitated so whilst he was there he endeared himself to all the nurses and psychiatrists and he was getting right in there he was a total model prisoner he was even trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates one, he's so
0: funny doing that. Like it's so clever that he did Of know. course
1: it is. One psychiatrist said he was a very good worker and that is not typical of a sociopath. He really took pride in his work. Ed also became a member of the JCS whilst there, which is a leadership training organization for people between ages 18 and 40. And it concentrates on business development and management skills. So he's trying to learn as much stuff as, he's in, as he can whilst he's in there as possible. And he's getting all of these things put under his belt. He also claimed he developed some new tests and new scales on the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. So, this is a standardized psychometric test of adult personality and psycho- psychopathology. So, he basically said that he knew but it, that stuff he'd learned so much that he has made a test to judge other people's psychopathy and psychology whilst he's there. That's how, how much he'd researched into it and, and learned, apparently. So, yeah. Put that in your pipe and smoke I know. It. Yeah,
0: I'm kind of just like baffled. There was a lot of big words there as well. So I was a bit like,
1: ooh. So basically, psychologists use versions of that to, de- de- to develop treatment plans and assist with different diagnoses and answer forensic psychology questions in court cases, like stuff like that. Yeah. So you don't say someone gets murder someone and there's a psychologist in court. They're like, we did this test, this test, this test. Ed said he has made a new one of those tests, basically. Yeah. yeah. So he said he specifically developed an over overt hostility scale so not only is he learning these new tricks and all the ins and outs of psychology and diagnoses and how to diagnose patients but he's also adding to that by creating his own theories as well and he's doing this to trick psychiatrists into thinking that he was rehabilitated and psychiatrists are going along with this oh of course because he knows he knows all the notes he knows all the books he knows what he's meant to say to act like he's been rehabilitated. Mm. He's not going to say, I think about decapitating people all the yeah. time, every single day, because that's not going to get him out. But he's going to read all these books, which basically helps him learn what he needs to say. I mean, I
0: feel like you don't need an IQ of 145 to know not to say Absolutely. that. Absolutely.
1: But little do they know, he is still harboring sick, gruesome fantasies about murder, mutilation, decapitation, and just the darkest thoughts about killing people and killing people he knew. So we can see he's clearly intelligent, but he is as deadly and lethal as they come. His intelligence combined with the murderous thoughts he hid beneath the polite exterior was an absolute recipe for disaster. Mm. But the psychiatrist fell for his plan to make them think he's rehabilitated and he kept telling them what they wanted to hear. So they got all the answers they needed and he basically got himself released thanks to his research and his due diligence. So this means doctors now believe he was safe to walk the street and live among society and to be free once again. So that day came on on December 18th, 1969 on his 21st birthday. Ed was released on parole and unbelievably against the recommendation of psychiatrists, he was released into the care of his mother, Clarnell, the one person they knew he detested and thought was a trigger for his anger. So she's living in Aptos, California at this time. It's a new residence and it was a short drive from where she was now working. So Carnell was now an administrative assistant at the University of California in Santa Cruz.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: Ed, he's now free. He's still on parole. Um, and he f- further demonstrated to his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated in November ninth, 1972 when his juvenile records were shockingly permanently expunged. I know. So basically, again, crazy. In terms, it means that they've done more tests whilst he's out and they're like, oh, do you know what? He's completely fine now. Let's just f- scratch it off his record that he murdered his grandparents. And that's basically what's happened. So he has got a completely clean bill now. It's insane. So one of the psychiatrists actually wrote before they wiped his record said, if I were to see this patient without having any history available, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he's made an excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would say no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or any danger to any member of society. I mean, can we just? I can't even. So then would they said, you "Ever?" Like, I know, I know. And I assume
0: he, she had to quit her job immediately oh, after this. Or could you be kicking
1: yourself? <laughs> what they an finished idiot. it off with, "I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records." So these are famous last words. Well, living with his mother, Kemper attended a community college, and he'd hoped to become a police officer. Although, due to his massive size, he was rejected. So. At this stage we know he's absolutely huge, six foot nine, he goes by the name nickname Big Ed by those who know him. And despite his rejection from joining the force, he maintains friendships with Santa Cruz Police Department.
0: This thing about being too
1: big to join the police force, can I what? Can't I somebody please but then again, this was like back in the day. I don't know if that's the case anymore.
0: Well, I mean, there certainly is be... a minimum height restriction. But, I didn't realise there was a maximum. There's not now either. No, there isn't. I, th- I don't think I there, think there is now. Too, but... Yeah,
1: I think that's changed. So even though he wasn't able to get into police force though, he actually was coming pally pally with the ones that he'd met mm-hmm. during him trying to. So he worked on a series of menial jobs before gaining employment with the State of California Division of Highways. During that time, his relationship with his mum remained toxic and hostile. The two would have massive arguments that neighbours would always overhear and describe them as like just horrendous, just horrible, violent, vicious battles. Ed would later describe the arguments he had with his mum and he said... I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fist like with a man, but this was my mum and I couldn't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it and just over and over stupid things. I remember one was over whether i should have my teeth cleaned so basically i mean he's not making loads of sense but he's basically saying that they had arguments about the smallest things and about everything but they were getting into fisticuffs and getting into fisticuffs these were these were violent arguments so he was desperate to escape these daily arguments once he saved enough money he decided to move out and live with a friend hoping to escape his mum But no such luck, as Clarnell kept calling him all the time. She kept turning up unannounced with surprise visits and generally driving him mad.
3: (laughs) This is Justin, host of Obscura, a true crime podcast. Do you need a true crime fix? Obscura has atmospheric music and sound design. The show shines a spotlight on the darker things in life by taking a narrative approach to covering real murders, mysteries, missing persons and more. What do I mean by narrative approach? On Obscura, we structure our episodes in such a way that they paint a narrative in your mind with a heavy focus on victims and less-known cases. Each week, I'll take you on a deep dive into the darker side of history, mystery, and murder. Be warned, Obscura is not for the squeamish. Shocking crimes are covered in full detail, and real court and 911 audio is used when possible. If you're a true crime fan with a taste for the hard stuff, then Obscura has you covered. Each month sees the release of Obscura Black Label. Black Label is reserved for only the darkest cases. Finally, if you're a listener that likes a binge, Obscura has a large library of episodes ready for you to download now. You can find Obscura, a true crime podcast, on your podcast app of choice. Just search Obscura True Crime, and you can't miss our logo.
0: At the time he is now working for the state of California's highway division and he had moved in with this friend in Almeida. So it is around this time in March of 1973 that he actually gets engaged. So the ever-surprising serial killer engagements, which just leaves me baffled every time. Well, bloody they didn't know time. he was a serial killer then. I don't care because <laughs> I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> How have these people manage to find someone and love to love them and agree to marry them it's just beyond me So I'm eating a sweet on the thing <laughs> Just munch away there um, So she was actually only 17 at the time and her name has never been released to the public under the parents request um, so because she was a I'm assuming because she was a minor that they were able to do that mm. So Kemper was in a bad accident in 1973 when he was driving his motorcycle So a car actually hit him, his arm was quite badly damaged and the other driver was at fault so Kemper sued him and was awarded $15,000. Now in today's money that would be over $100,000 or 80,000 sterling for those of us in the UK. So quite a lot of money and he uses this money to buy his first car, a 1969 Ford Galaxy. Now, this would open his eyes to the opportunities that driving a car would give him in the Santa Cruz area. So the University of California in, in Santa Cruz was relatively a new university. It was only open six years at the time. So it was a mixed university, which was very progressive in the 70s. And the term co-ed was used to refer to women who were attending the university. Was that co-education? Yeah, exactly Hannah, very good. It does stand for co-education, which actually makes no sense because why would that only refer to women then? But anyway, Mm. the university itself was just outside of Santa Cruz, which made it challenging to get to because not many of the students could afford to have cars and the bus services were not great. So instead, the students studying at the university would regularly hitchhike to and from campus. So Kemper saw his opportunity in these young women willing to get into his car and unknowingly placing themselves at his mercy. So he began to practice picking up and talking to these different women. He would only pick up women, never men. And he estimates that he picked up over 200 women before he did anything. Wow. All in his testing so he was phase. really
1: learning the tricks of his trade. Yeah. He was practicing and practicing and practicing, wasn't he? It's crazy. So he was learning how to, talk to, how to talk to the women,
0: how to get them to trust him. And remember, he had spent these formative years locked away, so really he hadn't learned how to talk to women. Mm. And his mother's constant criticism probably left him feeling like an idiot around women most of the time. Now, in July 1972, hikers find a skull on the side of the road. Initially, it was so deteriorated that investigators could not determine if the skull was male or female. Police scour the Loma Prieta mountain where they had found the skull, but that was all that they found and no other remains were found. They could not link it to any missing person reports. Now, remember, at the time, they think this is a male. Mm. So they couldn't link it to any other... So any missing person reports, but this would all soon change. Mary Ann Pesk and Anita uh, Lucessa were hitchhiking from Fresno State University to Stanford University. They were both 18 years old at the time. So Ed picked them up and he made his way to a secluded wood in Alameda. So he knew the area well from his time working for the highway division and the girls, on the other hand, probably didn't know the area very well at all. He had derived a plan on how to lock the doors from the inside he realized that he could reach across the girl in the front seat and drop a chapstick into the door handle, preventing it from opening. And it was just a really simple little trick that he figured out. Oh, my God. And so when they get into the car, everything's working normally. He reaches across pretending to do something, drops the chapstick and blocks the handle. That's super cunning. I know.
1: So he would do
0: this to ensure that the girls couldn't escape. And for me, it's very reminiscent of Bundy. Didn't he used to take the handles? Yeah, off the Yeah, he also of the used door?
1: to remove the entire passenger seat as well. So that's why he liked Volkswagen Beetles, apparently, is because they had removable passenger seats.
0: Well, if anyone would know, Hannah would. Um, so he handcuffed Anita and put her into the trunk of the car. He then took a knife and stabbed Marianne multiple times, finally strangling her to death. He then removed Anita from the trunk and did the same to her. He tells this weird story later about apologising to Anita for accidentally brushing the back of his hand on her breast when he was trying to get her out of the car. Like he is a murderer, but like a chivalrous murderer. So like a good guy deep down, you know.
1: Yeah. He's like um, a polite murderer, you
0: know. Yeah, so polite. This is his constant facade and it drives me absolutely crazy. He thinks that he's everyone fooled. Like he thinks everyone is fooled by him, that he's such a nice guy.
1: But they kind of are. Because they're getting in the car.
0: Yeah. No, but I mean, that, like, I mean, when he's telling the interviewers about this later, oh, I see. And, like, the yeah. police are kind of just listening, like, and yeah. you know. But,
1: but also, the, a lot of the police actually kind of liked him.
0: Yeah, way back. Yeah, but I don't think they liked him so much when they found out like he was the, murderer. With the
1: FBI, like, late down. Like, it seemed like they almost became kind of. They had some sort of, you know, rapport, rapport like a good rapport with him. And it's almost like a mutual sort of respect. Like, you know, we, you know, what we need to get out of you. You know, like, you know, why you're talking to us. It was almost like... I mean, they probably just carefully played it off like that, but... It's almost they, just like
0: he's just a real nice guy, but just with murderous tendencies. Well,
1: yeah. I mean, he looks totally normal as well. He looks like the absolute most normal, geeky kind of guy.
0: I mean, he's massive. He doesn't look that normal.
1: Well, I mean, like, the glow, the specs, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the, the big gentle chime. Anyway, we digress.
0: Anyway, so... Um, and do you know what, you're right. One thing you hear about him all the time is that he is the big friendly giant. Mm. And the more you hear actually about him, the more I to despise him. He, like he did have everyone fooled for a time. So Kemper put the bodies of Anita and Marianne in the trunk of his car and drove back to the apartment he shared with his friend in Alameda. And get this, Hannah. He actually stopped was stopped by the police <gasps> for having a broken taillight. I'm
1: so surprised that he made that mistake.
0: I mean, I, so I actually wonder, was the tail like broken in the, trying to get Anita in there, the trunk? Like uh, if she was putting was up say, a fight. Because it seems
1: like very sloppy for someone who's so, dil- like so diligent and so like. Well, he was a bit meditative. sloppy. I think
0: he was a bit one of these, like a bit of a uh, kind of. Um, Oaf. Yeah, you know like a bumbling <laughs> okay. oaf you wait, know
1: wait, wait, whenever you eventually have a patron you'll see what Kate's doing with her arms here she's like an octopus she's like he's kind of like he's kind of like you're
0: like I'm trying to like do a trundling motion oh is that what that was yeah okay. you know like just kind of trundling along <laughs> okay so as he actually says in one of I, I think I can't actually remember if it was at these at these particular ones but he closes the when he puts the bodies into the trunk he closes the car and then he thinks that he's dropped the keys in the trunk so then he's like searching for the keys, can't find them, mm-hmm. and he panics himself, and then he falls over. And like he's he's always kind of doing stupid things. Like mm-hmm. I think he is a bit of a like he's so big that he can't see his own feet type things. So yeah. He's falling over the place.
1: Yeah, and didn't he actually lock himself out? That's coming. I'm going to okay, tell you that okay. bit in a minute.
0: So yeah, so he does do stupid things. Mm. Um, so anyway, forty headlights. So yeah, please stop him. And the thing is, they are actually. It's actually like a friendly stop. They're saying to him, look, uh, we're stopping you to let you know that you've got a tail light out, mm-hmm. you need to get it fixed. Mm-hmm. And then they just send him on his way. So it, it's just one of those really unlucky situations. Such a
1: close call. Yeah, but
0: they had no reason to search the car.
1: Damn. Remember, Dalma was stopped with one of his first victims. Yeah. And he was like, oh, these bags are just trash. I'm just dropping trash off for my dad. Uh, Little did they know there's a body in there. Crazy, but wasn't somebody caught by a, t- a tail light? Uh, wasn't that Joel Rifkin? I can't remember. Yeah. Oh god, I hate that guy. I'm pretty sure it's Joel Rifkin. It was either tail light or it was um, a crappy, dodgy license plate. Something wrong with his I license plate. I think it was plate. the tail light. And um, yeah, and then they found a body in his car. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was Joel Rifkin. Um. So back to Ed. When he gets
0: back to his apartment, his roommate is out, so he brings the bodies into his bedroom where he photographs them and has sex with them. He then dismembers the two girls and puts their body parts into plastic bags. He disposes of the body parts in separate locations around the Loma Prieta mountain, but not before having oral sex with their de- decapitated heads. Yes. Gosh. So his next victim was also his youngest victim. And her name is Aiko Ku. So Kemper thought that Aiku was a student and only realised when the news reports came out that she was just 15 years old. So Aiku was a talented dancer and was last seen on the 14th of September 1972 on her way to a dance class. She had missed the bus and didn't want to be late so had decided to hitchhike when Kemper pulled up alongside her. Once again he drove Aiku out to a remote location he told aiku that he had abducted her but not to worry because he was actually going to kill himself now at this stage he had purchased himself a small 22 caliber gun which he which when he pulled up and got out of the car he somehow managed to lock himself out so aiku's in the car with the gun and he is locked outside of the car oh so he God. is a bit of a fool like he's doing <sighs> stupid stuff but Unfortunately, he manages to talk Ike, um, Ico into opening oh, the door and no. letting him back into the car.
1: Well, and she had the keys in there? Yeah. But at 15, would she even know how to drive away?
0: I don't know if she would have known how to drive well, I mean, in America, I think they're allowed to drive. 15. Actually, yeah. But, I mean, not probably not back then. As you said, like students didn't even have cars. A 15-year-old isn't even to a car. Yeah, what would she
1: have done? Bless her. But also...
0: I When I was trying to think about this Why would she let him back in And not even just try to drive the car away Well I suppose first of all you're right She might not have been able to drive the car And be like well I'm stuck regardless mm. And he's just going to break a window and get mm. in So and then the other thing is Maybe she kind of believed him That he was of just going to kill himself Are there
1: there's so many killers who are like Don't worry I'm not going to hurt you, you. I'm just going to tie you up BTK Yeah He would like be He got like a whole family of four tied up He's like don't worry I'm just on the run I'm not going to hurt you I'm just going to rob you I'm going to go um, the Golden State Killer, same thing. Some some victims that he didn't murder. Yeah, he was like, I'm not gonna hurt you, blah blah. You know, so I reckon she probably thought he he wasn't gonna. I hurt her. She probably just hoped, yeah, exactly. Um,
0: so he managed. So she, he managed to get back into the car. He then strangled her until she passed out and raped and then killed her. He put her body into the trunk and drove to the nearest bar for a few drinks. He then did the same as he did with the other two student victims, brought her back to his apartment where he photographed and had sex with her corpse. He then dismembered her and disposed of her remains.
1: Now Ed was on a murderous rampage. His taste for killing was growing every day. Those fantasies he had long harbored had spilled into reality and now he had fully given into them. His need to act out these sick urges for mutilation and necrophilia was all-encompassing. Sadly, another young co-ed named Cindy Scholl was about to find this out as her path fatefully crosses with his. So on January 7th, 1973, Ed was driving around the Cabrillo College campus when he picks up 18-year-old student Cynthia Ann Scholl, who was known by friends as Cindy. Now, I know some of us might think, why get into a car when there's girls being murdered? But let's just put things into perspective. This guy who pulls up in the car he's got glasses he's very bookish looking he's very unassuming and he's not how you would expect a scary killer to look like and don't forget serial killers were unknown then the phrase hadn't even been coined yet so it was an unknown phenomenon at the time luckily for Ed so he was able quite easily to get these girls into his car and um, also she also quickly i think someone would make the judgment they'd look at him and go oh, this can't be the guy you know and apparently this is what happened with cindy so she accepts the offer and she gets in now trapped in his car cindy's fate is sealed ed drives her to a wooded area and cindy who's now terrified realizes she's in mortal danger and she's screaming as he pulls out his 22 caliber pistol and he fatally shoots her he then picks up her lifeless body placing it in the trunk of his car and he drives over to his mother's house. Here, he transfers her from the car into a closet in his bedroom where he keeps her overnight. When his mum left for work the next morning, he sets to work. He starts by having sexual intercourse with her corpse. Well, sexually abusing her corpse. He also removed the bullet from her body and then dismembers and decapitates her in his mum's bathtub. He is so brazen and it's like the biggest fuck you to a parent, isn't it? It's, and and it's a massive fuck you to his mum. It is so brazen, though. Mm. I mean, you, would you
0: not be absolutely terrified? Absolutely. That, like
1: you, the place would be a mess and your mum would arrive yeah. home. And he, see, he's being very clever in the way that he's removing the bullets because he knows that if they suspect him and they do ballistic tests on his gun, they won't be able to tell those bullets came from his pistol. mm. So he is clever in some ways and then being sloppy in other ways. So he kept Cindy's severed head for several days so he could regularly use it for oral sex. He for then less. buries it in his mother's garden with her head facing upward towards his mum's bedroom. After his arrest, he stated that he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. He discarded the rest of Cindy's remains by throwing them off a cliff. Over the course of the following few weeks, all except Cindy's head and right hand were discovered and pieced back together like a macabre jigsaw puzzle. That's awful. A pathologist determined that Cindy had been cut into pieces with a power saw. This man is a monster. I mean, to the highest degree. I mean, all the interviews you see with him and how affable and how polite he is, you can kind of... Be forgiven by forgetting. But when you think about the actual things that he did, I mean, it wasn't just her head. He was putting heads, a collection of them, in his mum's garden. And these were girls he knew worked on campus, you know, going to campuses. His mum worked on these campuses. Mm. You know, it's almost like a, I'm going to basically do some serious damage to where you work, you know. It's it's all aimed back at his mum. And he's not finished yet. On February 5th, 1973, Ed had another heated argument with Clarnell. He storms out of the house. His blood is boiling as he decides to search for some more potential victims. With heightened suspicion of a serial killer that was preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area, students had now been advised to accept rides only from cars with the university stickers on them. So... This was like sending these girls like lambs to the slaughter. Like, what a stupid thing to say. I know, but then they didn't really know much about serial killers then. It was, you know, it wasn't really on the news. There had been, you know, um, Dean Corll had, had, you know, killed a lot of people, you know. We covered him in an early episode. We did, but it wasn't always on the news it was very very rare mm. and so nobody really knew what was the right thing to do so the university is saying i'll oh, only hitchhike in cars that have university stickers on them because then they're students too so you'll be safe but of course ed has got himself one of these stickers yeah and what's to say that the serial is a student there. yeah well exactly that's the thing so he's managed to get his massive grubby mitts on a university sticker and um he uses it and he pulls up in his car offering a ride To his next victim, he drives past and then pulls up to 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and her friend, 39-year-old Alice Helen or Allison Liu. According to Ed, Rosalind got into his car first and then reassures Allison, like, "Oh, it's fine, get in." So they've got a false sense of security, these girls, because they see he's got a sticker, so they think he is safe. And they're in
0: like there's two of them.
1: Yep. And they were doing the right thing because that's what they were told to do by police. You know, if they've got a sticker, it's fine. You can you can hitchhike. So he, of course, drives them to an isolated area and then he pulls out his pistol, shooting Rosalind in the head first, then turning the gun on Alison. She was shot several times, including twice in the head. And he shoots both girls dead.
0: Didn't he say that Alison kind of was trying to dodge the bullets? Yeah. Oh. yeah. Oh, she must have been terrified. I
1: know. She was trying. She's really trying to mm. fight for her life. So he sets about wrapping their bodies in blankets he had ready in his car. And again, he brings his victims back to their mother's house. This time, he beheads them in his car and carries their headless corpses into his mum's house in order Jeez. to sexually abuse them. He then dismembers the bodies, removes all the bullets to prevent identification and discards their remains the next morning. Some of their remains were found a week later and more were found near Route 1 later on in March. So he was scattering parts of them. When questioned in later interviews as to why he decapitated his victims, he explained the head... Tro- um, it was like a trophy. They were fantasies for him and he wanted to keep them as trophies. And you know the head... This is what he said. You know the head is where everything is at. The brain, the eyes, the mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. End quote. What a grisly statement from him there.
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: he's a creep. So six girls are dead and all the while Ed is accompanying the local cops, his drinking buddies on car patrol rides and he's hearing little tidbits about their murder investigations whilst he's drinking with them at the local bar. So he's basically, he goes to the same bar as all the local cops do. They know the him. Ju- the they, have drinks with him. Yep, they have Yeah, they have shots with him. And he will go in the back of the car when they get call-outs and literally be in, in around all these cops. What? So he's learning things from them. He'd be in the back of the car. Sometimes, you know when it's like a police call-out thing, whatever. And then people who want to be cops are allowed to go in the back, back of the car to sort no. of see. Well, apparently he did, so... I guess you have been invited on any, sorry. (laughs) No, I have not. So there they are looking for this sadistic killer that's on the loose and all the while they're having drinks with him and giving him rides around town whilst spilling details of the investigation on the crimes over a few cheeky pints at the bar. I mean, you can't (laughs) even make it up.
0: No, you couldn't make it
1: up. So now Ed, for the last few months, has been hunting and preying on co-ed girls. That part of his murderous appetite was now satiated. Because all these killings, from his grandparents years before, to the brutal slayings of the six women, had been a long lead-up to one murder. A gruesome, violent murder that he had long been building up to and fantasising about his whole life.
0: Yeah, and this all kind of stems from a really strange situation. So one day, the police are going through routine checks of people who have bought firearms. So it must have been a slow day in the office because from what I understand, at the time, this is all done on paper. <laughs> slow
1: day in the office.
0: So one of the officers comes across the fact that Kemper has bought a massive forty-five calibre gun and it's been flagged because he has a juvenile record.
1: I thought it was expunged. Well, it's,
0: it is, it's sealed. But ha- okay, I'll explain why. Mm. Give me a minute name. So now the record is sealed, but he, so it's done manually. So it was manually scratched out. Yeah. So he is actually able to read through the redaction. Wow. And he sees that Kemper has murdered his grandparents. Jeez. I know. So now they're actually not sure what to do in this situation because the juvenile records were supposed to have been sealed. And as you say, expunged. So does this mean that they have no rights to take the gun? They actually don't know. That's a tough one. Yeah. So they decide that what they will do is they'll just confiscate it for now and they'll get a judge to make a ruling on it, which I think is fair enough. So the two officers go to Kemper's house to retrieve the firearm. Now, they are having a really difficult time finding the house. It's all like, you know, 609A, 609B, 609C, and they just can't figure out which one it is. And uh, they... See a man's feet hanging out of a Ford Galaxy. Now the officer describes watching Kemper getting out and getting out and getting out of the car because he's That's so big and so long. <laughs> it's actually really funny, um, but and then finally this mountain of a man is just like emerges, yeah, emerges out of the car. You know, you can kind of imagine that you at know, like the clown car. So. He explains the issue to Kemper and he is understanding and agrees to hand over the gun. Now, apparently, Kemper says that inside, he's actually kind of flitting himself. He's thinking, Mm. what gun are they talking about? You know, because they haven't actually, they're not not giving away too much information. So he immediately starts to believe that the cops are playing games with him and that they know what he has done. So this could not be further from the truth. They have no idea what he's been doing. So he goes to the trunk of the car, and the officers instinctively separate and stand on either side of the car. And Kemper later told that very officer that if they had not done that, he was going to shoot them both because he thought they were onto him. Wow. So they just automatically, they, just, they both just went opposite sides, and that's what Lucky. saved them. Mm. So the officers took the gun and left, leaving a confused Kemper to decide what his next steps should be. One thing he does know is that there's a murder he wants to commit and that's the murder of his mother. A few days later, on the 20th of April 1973, Kemper wakes up to his mother arriving home drunk from a party. He gets up and goes to a room where he finds her sitting in bed reading a book. She sneers at him and says, I suppose you're going to want to sit up and talk all night. Kemper says no and he goes back to his room. He's seething. And he said he debated with himself for hours about killing her. Finally, he takes a claw hammer, sneaks into her room while she's asleep and bludgeons her to death. He then decapitates her and proceeds to have sex with the corpse. He put her decapitated head on a shelf and screamed himself hoarse, shouting at the head. He threw darts at the head and then proceeded to cut out the thong and her vocal cords in an act of defiance. She could no longer berate him without her tongue or her vocal oh cords.
1: Oh my God, this is savage. It
0: is absolutely sick. He, this, sorry, this just keeps getting worse. Don't say the T word. This is like, it just, it's just the the gruesome story that just keeps giving because I cannot tell you this is so gross. So he tried to grind the vocal cords in the kitchen sink's garbage disposal unit, but they got stuck. And he told interviewers that he actually thought that that was just ironic because of the way his mother treated him all his life, that she would still have the last kind of say almost.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: So then, as seems to be part of his M.O., he put his his mother's body in the wardrobe in her room and went out drinking at the local bar.
1: Well, after he'd filled his boots at this local bar, something he obviously felt he'd won after Carnell's brutal killing, Ed was not done yet. After he filled his boots at this local bar, something he obviously needed to do after savagely murdering his mother, mm-hmm. Ed was not done yet. Upon his return to the home, he calls up and invites his mother's best friend over to the house. 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Hallett was known as Sally to those who knew her. Ed invited her over under the pretense that they would have dinner and watch a movie. When Sally arrived at the house, Ed launched his brutal attack. He strangled Sally to death and put her body in a closet, then set about hiding and cleaning up any signs of a disturbance or struggle. God, that must have been a fucking hard job with all the savage killing he's been doing in that house. I mean, the house What's must... What's the point, mate? Seriously. Uh, literally. He then left a note to police saying, Approximately 5.15am, Saturday... No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete gents. Just the lack of time I've got things to do. Very strange, yeah. strangely written notes it, It's there. like
0: he's trying to talk to them out there as friends.
1: Mm. So after this, Kemper fled the murder scene. And he drove non-stop to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine pills to keep him awake during the over 1,000 mile or Whoa. 1,600 kilometer journey. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car. And he falsely believed that he was the target of an active manhunt yeah. now. His paranoia was out of control. But after arriving in Pueblo, he didn't hear any news on the radio about the murders of his mum or Sally. There was nothing on the TV, not so much as a dicky bird. (laughs) So Ed was tired of running and waiting for the ball to drop. So he decides to take matters into his own hands. He's done what he felt he needed to do and he's ready to talk. He drives to a phone booth and who does he call but his good old buddies down at the police station. Once through to the police, he actually confesses. Beggars belief that he rang them
0: himself. He was just so annoyed oh, well, that they this. hadn't figured it out.
1: He tells them, I've killed my mom and her friend. But despite this full-on confession, police don't believe him. <laughs> Instead, they just tell him to call back at a later time. What? I mean, can we just... Call what back. the Ecky Peck was just a bit busy at the you just call even, back later? What the was going on down at that station? That they were too busy to take a murder confession <laughs> yeah. at the time. Were they watching the football, having a fag break? Come on, guys. So Ed goes off on his merry way and several hours later, he tries again. Stop. He calls the police back and he asks to speak to an officer he personally knows. This is ridiculous. Like Emma Slapstick, calm like. I can't even. Once the officer was on the line, Ed confessed again to killing his mum and Sally. And then he waits. He's leaning his huge frame over the top of this phone booth, waiting to be arrested as the cops finally pull up and they take him into custody. That's how tall he was. That he had to rest over the top Oh my god! Stop. I didn't upper... even realize so what you were saying. Booth, the police actually go later say that they, when they arrive, he's so tall that his whole t- upper torso he's just leaning all the way over the roof of the phone booth to sort of support himself. That's how tall he was. So once in custody, Ed admits to Jeez. all of the murders of the six college students. Police finally have the co-ed killer in custody. When asked in another later interview why he turned himself in, Ed said, "Quote: The original purpose was gone." It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time emotionally. I couldn't handle it much longer toward the end. There I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and I called it all off. Quote, well, that's good of you, Ed, isn't it? You decided I've had enough now after killing 10 people. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna fess up. Yeah. So to just get this into perspective, in less than one year, in 11 months, he's just killed eight people. Jesus. As a serial killer, his calling off period was not very long at all. Some will take breaks for years, you know, decades even. Mm. So he had really gone. Yeah, he'd really worked himself up into a killing frenzy. And another sick confession he later told police during one of his interviews, he said, quote, When I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One part of me wants to take her home and be real nice and treat her right. The other part wonders what her head would look like on a stick. End quote.
0: That was actually used in the movie Psycho, played by Patrick, um, what's his name, Bateman? Bateman? Christian Bale. Christian Bale, yeah. Uh, you
1: mean American Psycho?
0: American Psycho, that's it. Oh, that's a great film. And he uses that, but he says that it's oh. Ed Gein, and it's actually not, as No, Carver. that's Ed Kemper, yeah. yeah. Um, wow, well, I've confused myself. Court. On the 7th of May, <laughs> 1973... <laughs> Uh, Kemper was charged with eight counts of first-degree murder. He tried to plead not guilty by reasons of insanity, but the court psychiatrists ruled that he was not criminally insane. He was aware of what he was doing and he knew right from wrong. One of the psychiatrists, Dr. Joel Fort, even administered a truth serum, which Seems a bit crazy in itself, Mm. but whilst under the influence of this truth serum, Kemper admitted to having eaten flesh from some of the bodies.
1: Ah, so he's a cannibal as well.
0: I tell you, it never ends with this guy. He sliced off meat from the legs and cooked them in a casserole. Now, later on, he would go on to deny the cannibalism, but...
1: Who knows? Mm
0: -hmm. Kemper testified in court that he had two sides to his personality. So kind of like a split personality. A killer and the good guy. So he claimed that when the killer took over, he blacked out and had no knowledge of what he was doing. Absolute dog's bollocks in my opinion. On the 8th of November 1973, Kemper is found guilty on all counts of first degree murder. He is sentenced to the death penalty and he asks for himself to be executed by death, by torture, because... That's the type of attention seeker that he is.
1: Wow.
0: Why would you ever ask for that?
1: Because he's crazy.
0: He's just an attention seeker. Um, I'm sorry. I'm not having it.
1: No, me neither. Not
0: having it. However, the Supreme Court of California halted all executions in California state. Instead, he is serving seven years to life for each count of murder that he committed.
1: Seven years? <sighs> it's the 70s. Oh, God. You could do God, anything. love him. Not.
0: Yeah. You could do absolutely anything in the 70s and be grand. But, I mean, he's saving life. So mm. Kemper was remanded at California medical center, which happens to be the same place where Charles Manson was held. Um, but at the same time, of, as all of his murders had been committed, another vicious murder was prowling the streets of California, and that was that of Herbert Mullen. Mm. Now, Herbert Mullen's crimes were all going on at the same time, and they were initially, police were getting confused as if this was, to if this was. the same person mm-hmm. or not. So when Herbert Mullen was arrested, they actually initially thought that oh my god, yay, yeah, they they found the killer, solved all the murders, Mm -hmm. and of course they hadn't. Um, But Edward Mullen, uh, sorry, Edward Kemper and Mullen would have a kind of um, a very uh, competitive. Yeah, Kemper was kind of jealous of Mullen in some Mm. ways. I think he was pissed off that people thought that he was. That they were it's similar in their, yeah, in their and sense. I
1: think he also wanted to be like the only famous serial killer in there. Yeah, you know. And he
0: didn't like the fact that um that Mullen had been in there too. And yeah. he used to um he used to kind of bully him. Mm. And <laughs> Mullen used to do he'd be like singing and annoying people. Yeah. And Kemper started doing things where he would throw water on him if he started singing. Ooh, you're I know, yeah. But I mean you oh, wouldn't mess down, with him, mate. would you? <laughs> so Mullen is only five nine and Kemper's six nine. Okay, well. well so then. he wasn't gonna mess with them. So he'd throw water on him and be like, make him stop. And then, then it started that Mullen would start asking Kemper, can I sing Ed? And Ed would either say yes or no. And he'd do things like if he was well behaved, he'd give him peanuts. And he'd started calling him Herbie, which Mullen hated. So his name was Herbert, but he hated being called Herbie. So he'd do these kind of things just to annoy him. Mm. But he was kind of training him up like mm. a dog. And he said to himself, it was like he was training him. Mm. Um... Anyway, neither here nor there. Kemper is seen as a model prisoner and because of his good behavior, he is kept in gen pop. General population. Yes. Up until he had a stroke in 2015, he had specific jobs in the prison, such as organizing inmate uh, patient appointments with their psychiatrists, if you don't mind. Uh, he also has narrated over 5,000 hours of audiobooks for a charity organisation for the visually impaired. Now, I mean, audiobooks are no longer just for the vision visually impaired. I love audiobooks. I would suggest. So who knows? We could all be going to bed this evening, listen to the docile talents of Edmund Kemper III, murderer oh, well, and narrator. How about that, eh? <laughs> how about that? But Kemper has been denied parole numerous times. He has also waived his right to parole numerous times. Apparently he agrees that he should not be out in society. He was last denied in two thousand seventeen and his next eligible eligibility date, I suppose, is going to be twenty twenty four. So this some stage year. this year. Yeah.
1: Mm. Interesting indeed. So also wasn't it whilst he was in prison as well, he was obviously interviewed extensively by the legend, the man, the myth legend, John <laughs> Douglas, who is, you know, was the FBI criminal profiler who yeah. coined the phrase serial killers mm-hmm. and we mentioned um, him earlier in the you, Mind book yeah we touched him earlier and he interviewed Ed in well many places but also in Vassable Prison California and during his in-depth interviews with Kemper what Douglas learned from Ed's openness and willingness to talk was invaluable to FBI criminal profilers and for the future so he actually set the standard for it
2: what were they? Yes. Um, possessing the severed heads of women. Men didn't turn me on. That wasn't very, I couldn't appreciate the appearances of a guy. That when I was young, I was about eight or nine years old. I went to a, this little come on. It was like at a record store or something. And they had this crowd of kids there and there was a magic show. And this guy, you've probably seen it, the fake guillotine hand and they put the potato there and someone puts their neck in the uh, in the brace and they slam this thing down and the potato down below chops in two but the person's head doesn't fall off right and everybody gets very fascinated by that oh my god and then when he puts the blade in place and he pushes it down it goes through that neck hole but it never chops anybody's head off okay so he wanted a volunteer out of the I'm not standing in this crowd watching this show and he wanted to volunteer out of the audience, and some quite beautiful little 16-year-old girl gets up there, and it's a big laugh, and you are know, all giddy and stuff, and I started getting caught up in this. I said, wow, uh, right at that moment, I departed reality, because logically, I should have been able to ascertain that that could not happen. You're not gonna get away with chopping somebody's head off in the middle of, uh, <laughs> in the middle of Helena, Montana, the capital city. Um, but the concept of it, was so raw and it was titillating I says wow gee, gotta watch this and he had her girlfriend come over and put her hands there to catch her head so it wouldn't fall in the basket you know and he was making jokes about this I got caught up in this this um, this interplay between normal concerns you don't want to get a bump on her head well hey if you're chopping her head off it doesn't matter right and this is catching in my mind somehow and I'm saying wow Uh, the first time okay Uh, The two girls were killed around 6 p.m. By 11 the next morning, they are both completely gone out of my life physically. All right? That's not even 24 hours. The third murder, which is the second incident, okay? Uh, I'm in the middle of trying to get my record sealed, right? Thursday night, I killed her. I took off Friday. I didn't go to work. I called in sick, took CTO, all right? Dismembered her body, got rid of her body, but kept her head in her hands because they're identifiable. They're highly identifiable I kept those at the apartment okay that Friday night I, uh, Thursday night I took her Friday uh, Friday morning she was dismembered Friday night she was disposed of right Saturday morning I left right and I didn't have I wasn't satisfied that I, I took the head along in the hands but I didn't I couldn't put them someplace that I was, could be sure they would be dug up by an animal or just be somewhere it was it's scary going out there trying to bury somebody or dispose of body parts in a community or out in the, even in the boonies where you don't know where you're at and who can come up at any moment. I had some real close calls there where people would come out of nowhere. And if they, if a body's found and they remember this beige looking car sitting there the night, that's evidence. So it was very, very hard to get rid of this stuff.
1: Through his lengthy talks with Ed and other killers, um, he, he basically like learned so much about how the serial killer's mind works. And Ed was the one who was most willing to talk, honestly. So his study of Ed during these conversations set Douglas on a path of understanding that all criminal minds exemplify three personality traits. Manipulation, domination, and control. A formula that could and would be used and applied when interviewing and learning from other killers. So during John Douglas's 25 years of criminal profiling... He also interviewed subjects like Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., who we know helped Dean Corll, the Candyman. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Manson. We've got Richard Speck, who killed, what was it, eight or nine nurses. Um, John That's Wayne awful. Casey. I think he speaks for himself. David Berkowitz. Jeffrey Dahmer, to name but a few. His body of work was like a who's who of infamous serial Literally. killers. Literally. So they actually say that Douglas has talked to more serial killers than any other man alive wow yeah so ed is actually i mean my point being that was the blueprint of all of these things ed's interviews with john douglas enabled him to be able to learn about the mind of a serial killer and what was going on in those minds as much as possible so it was actually really important work Mm -hmm. um so although cases in which we hear of killers targeting their mums are rare they're certainly not unheard of this is a phenomenon known as parricide or parenticide, which is a term to describe the killing of one's mother, father or other relative. Killing one's mother can also be referred to as matricide. Here are some other examples where a child has committed matricide or parenticide. So, during Mother's Day in May 2017, 36-year-old Joshua Lee Webb killed his mother, 59-year-old Tina Marie Webb, in their home in Oregon. He also killed the dog his parents had just got him. I fucking hate this guy. Moments after Webb killed his mum, he showed up at a local grocery store with his mum's decapitated head in one hand and a large oh, kitchen God. knife in the other. Yes. I'm sorry, but what is with these parenticide type killers and decapitating I the mum's head? I don't heads? know. Isn't it's, it mad? It's really, There's got really to be horrible. something symbolic in that. I mean, it's it's you keep hearing about that, people who kill their mums. Webb then proceeded to stab one of the store employees before being subdued by staff who tied him up with duct tape. The the police were called to the store and Webb was arrested. It is still unclear what his motive was for the violent attack. He pled not guilty to the crimes of murder, attempted murder, first degree abuse of a corpse and first degree aggravated animal abuse. Webb was sentenced to life in state psychiatric custody. Guys, can you just please, right, take a moment and Google him. Because Joshua Lee Webb literally looks like the epitome of a crazy serial killer. He looks like he could literally be in a movie playing serial killer. He is like a scary <laughs> dude. So, in September 20th, um, 2017, uh, 19-year-old Andrew Wilson made a call to police early one morning. He explained he'd arrived home and found his mother, 51-year-old Lisa Wilson, dead. Police arrived and discovered his mum had been shot once in the back of the head. The investigators quickly realised no one had been in the home besides Wilson and his mum. So it didn't take long before he confessed that he was responsible for the death of his mum. The reason behind the killing was because, get this, she wouldn't allow him to keep a puppy. Now don't get me wrong, if I found a puppy and I wasn't allowed to keep it, I would be none too impressed. Yeah, Perhaps even give a little bit of a lip and, you know, you know, <sighs> slam my door or whatever but i certainly wouldn't kill anyone so sorry andrew you're not it's not a valid reason and you're not getting off with it so he'd bought this dog home several weeks before and he was informed he wasn't allowed to keep it so as his mum slept he shot her with a 0.22 magnum rifle then he drove to an area and got rid of the gun he entered a guilty plea to second-degree murder and he faced his up to life in prison. But I couldn't find anywhere what he was sentenced to. So if anyone could find that, great. But I could not find any follow-up articles on that. So I'm going to throw one more in for luck because I think we're running out of time. I know you want to get on with your little party tonight. My party! Yay! So October 2017... <laughs> 2017 16 year old daniel petrick had gotten into a dispute with his parents in their wellington ohio home mark and susan patrick were against daniel playing violent video games they told their son that if they found the games in the house they'd destroy them he'd been playing games like halo 3 and he'd usually play them at a friend's house to get away with a whole night of gaming but one evening he snuck the game into the house his mom finds out tells her husband about it and they confiscate it and locked it in the safe So a week later, he gets into that safe. He took the game out of it along with his father's handgun. He then proceeded to shoot and kill his mum and he badly injured his father. So his father, yeah, his father survives the attack and he actually asked the judge to be lenient with his son. So Daniel Patrick received a sentence of 23 years in prison. The defence explained the small sentence was due to the teenager's age and his addiction to the video game. So... I'm going to have to wrap it up there, guys, because actually, no, I'm going to do a few statistics on parenticide and then I'm going to wrap it up and then I will leave you alone. (laughs) So here's a few quick stats on parenticide. Um, Suspects who commit parenticide are overwhelmingly male with 88% committed by men with a medium age range of 31. Wow. 47% of suspects were single, having never been married at all. Incels. Yep. Yeah, totally. 37% of suspects were living with their parents at the time. So, in a study between 1976 and 2007, data showed most male parasite victims, so fathers or stepfather victims, that were killed in single single victim, single offender type killings. So, there'd be like one killer and one victim. Mm. Um, Most fathers and stepfathers were killed by children who were over the age of 18. Offenders who killed stepfathers tend to be younger than those who killed their biological fathers. Weird, isn't it? So yeah. younger kids kill the step-parents and the older kids kill their biological parents. It's basically what I'm trying to say. So juvenile offenders were significantly more likely to kill a parent using a firearm than adult perpetrators who would sometimes use other means. Okay, so there we go.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please follow us on our Instagram, our Twitter, our ex, I was going to say Twitter, our ex, Facebook and TikTok. And if you can, we would love a follow and rate and review. And also, we don't ask for much here on Damping the Mom, but if you could also, don't forget about the True Crime Awards, Listener's Choice. Yes. That one's not open for too much longer. It's only a couple more weeks, I think. I think it's finished in the beginning of March.
1: So please vote for us on there, guys. that's an ASAP, that one. So much. And we don't ask for much else, except could we just have the clothes off your back as well, please? Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> on that note, guys, have a great weekend, or actually, if you're here this on Monday, have a great week. week. Yep, we'll see you all next week for episode fifty-one.
0: Amazing. Bye. Bye.